Hello, my fellow humans. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Weird Humanity. As always, I am your host, Amanda, and just going to say it, enjoy singing to yourself throughout um, the entirety of this episode. It does cost money to include a song in in your podcast due to to, to copyright laws. Um, but you can see the title. You can sing it in your head. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Um, before we roll into that, I just, again, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for all the support uh, through episode four, which almost didn't happen. But then this is me stroking my own ego, but it ended up being a pretty gosh damn good podcast. And as of Monday, I'm recording this on Monday, so I'm not recording it nine hours before I plan on releasing it. Um, We are up to, for the whole podcast, almost 400 individual downloads already. That is absolutely insane. And thank you guys so, so much. I cannot express how much love I have for all of you out there. I'm going to do a quick disclaimer about love um, before we get into the episode because obviously I'm trying to approach all of this from a very um, scientific perspective. I'm trying to not make it too personal, um, too biased, or too opinionated, Um, but I do know that my my personal life will will affect um, the angle that that I take this and the angle that I did take this. Um, right now, as of recording, I am in a pretty good place um, personally. Thank you to therapy and medication. I am in a good relationship. I have good relationships and a good support system around me. Um, but if I would have been doing this episode a year ago, the vibe would have been completely different. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. If this seems very light and flowery and lovey-dovey, eh, it's kind of where I am in, in life. So sorry, not sorry. Um, this is a very sciencey episode. This is a lot like the laughter episode. Um, so I'm not going to do as much of the physiology and biology because it is so similar to laughter. Um, but we are going to talk about, you know, how can love be defined and quantified from a scientific and psychological standpoint? Um, we're going to talk about the definitions of love. What are visual reactions to being in love? What are different types of love? We're going to talk about the love languages, and we're going to touch on the five senses, pun intended. Um, this was the the heaviest research I have done thus far. There, the, the research I did for, let's say, compared to the horoscope episode to this, it's I have almost four times as much printed out articles and, and stuff that I've wrote out. So I'm going to, um, in the future, do some spinoffs that kind of relate to love, 
the signs of attraction in and of itself is quite interesting. Um, monogamy and polyamory, that's something that I've wanted to cover ever since I started throwing on around the idea of doing this podcast. And I'm going to do a, a sex episode. Um, don't worry, it's not going to be, when it, when it comes, it's not going to be like pornographic. It's going to be more like history and taboos and um, where we are at as a society with our views on sex. But before we get into sex, let's talk about love. So what is love? It's more than a catchy song that the guys from the Night at the Roxbury bob their heads to, because I know you've all been thinking it since you read What is Love, Baby, Don't Hurt Me. Love has been defined or attempted to be defined since the beginning of time. If we go back to the days of Plato, who has been brought up in, I would say, three of my five episodes so far, Plato, again, is probably the the most important philosopher that has ever lived. There were two really beautiful quotes I found um, that Plato had said regarding love. The first is, love is born into every human being. It calls back the halves of our original nature. It tries to make one out of two and heal the wounds of human nature. And the other quote was, love is the name for our pursuit of wholeness, for our desire to be complete. And guess who else is going to make an appearance? That's right. That kooky psychiatrist and dream lover, Sigmund Freud. He also, I thought, had a pretty good quote about love. At the height of being in love, the boundary between ego and object threatens to melt away. Against all evidence of his senses, a man who is in love declares that I and you are one and is prepared to behave as if it were a fact. So if you if you take those those quotes about love from two of the the greatest minds. I don't know if I'd say Freud's the greatest mind, but essentially we are wounded and and we are ego-driven. That is just the nature of humans and love heals both. Psychologists have really only started studying love within the past 100 years or so. There is a general conclusion between the, the psychology community that love is essentially an investment in the well-being of the other for his or her own sake. There is some debate among psychologists about whether love is an emotion, and the vast majority say, no, love is not an emotion. It is a combination of feelings and thoughts and behaviors and can be defined and experienced differently by each individual. 
from an evolutionary standpoint, if we go way, way back to our, our caveman days, love is an emotion system or a collection of activities that is designed to acquire and retain a series of emotions associated with reproduction and survival. So love grew out of our, our need to, to reproduce to build our, our society. And as humans have physically evolved over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, we have also evolved intellectually. The primordial drive behind love is directly related to mating and reproduction. But as humans have evolved, our baser instinct to reproduce has actually declined. And this is where I would branch off with the... Um, the sex episode. I think the 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 psychology behind the the reduction in the need to have children, how it's not um, such a need anymore, is also really interesting. But again, that is a an episode for another day. Love has become substantially a higher force in long-term committed relationships than, than sex and the desire to reproduce. Those are no longer the driving factors in our long-term social relationships. Um, and let's talk about what love does to the brain and how that affects the rest of the body. Okay, so like laughter, when we experience our own perceived definition of love, parts of our brain light up if we were in an MRI, um, an MRI machine, your brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Um, if you are, let's say you're introduced to to a picture or or are being told stories about the person that you are perceived to be in love with. Love also raises cortisol levels. Cortisol is our stress hormone, and when it increases too much, it can suppress immune function, which can get you literally very physically sick. Now, in the Middle Ages, love sickness was an actual accepted physical ailment that was caused by the imbalance of what they referred to as the four humors or basically what humans, what are physio physiologically are made of. And in Middle Ages, those four humors were blood, bile, melancholy, and phlegm, which I think is amazing that in the Middle Ages, that's basically what we were made of. Blood, pee, sadness, and spit. And what was the treatment for love sickness back in the Middle Ages? I honestly don't know. I didn't look that up because I already had too much research. Um, so I'm going to guess it was either cocaine or bloodletting. Again, I don't know, but it's really fun to speculate. Those seem to be the um, cures or um, medicine for every ailment back in those days. There are positive 
physical manifestations the effects of love has on the brain. The feeling of being in love causes an increase in norepinephrine, which an increase of that leads to alertness, more energy, but also sleeplessness, loss of appetite, increased attention, and increased memory retention. Norepinephrine also increases heart rate, sweating, and trembling. And trembling. So when someone says they are lovesick, they really truly physically can be sick from love. In the initial stages of that first you know, lust and attraction and falling for somebody, those those chemicals, they spike. And it is not until you are more established in a long-term attached relationship that those levels finally um, calm down. When we say that a couple has good chemistry, we literally mean that the chemistry between two people is working. So think of think of a couple, think of a pair you know that just when they're around each other, they just they just get it, they just click, they just you know, almost like they bounce off of each other. They feed off of each other's energies. They are simultaneously experiencing the releasing and triggering of various chemicals and hormones and neurotransmitters. These chemical reactions that they're both having is why they have good chemistry. So falling in love can be divided into three different steps. The first is lust. That's that initial feeling of Ooh, that spark when you first meet somebody. And when that happens, your body releases extra testosterone and estrogen, which is what creates those nervous and excited feelings. Then lust can grow into attraction. And that's when no and that's when dopamine, norepinephrine, and adrenaline are released. And that's where feelings of euphoria and joy and increased alertness and arousal. Fun fact, however, the science of attraction is incredibly complex. And although it is observable what happens when there is attraction between individuals, there is nothing that definitively says what attracts a person to another. So that's why I said I, I would like to explore that. And I think the research, I think the information is out there that attraction could be an episode in and of itself. But anyway, once you you graduate from lust and attraction, that final stage of falling in love is attachment. And that is when we release oxytocin and vasopressin, which are hormones related to long-term commitment. So these observations of chemical reactions and physical symptoms are, are created 
by our own perceived feeling of love. And like I said before, science cannot define love or attraction, at least not yet definitively. But these these increases of dopamine and serotonin and all those good chemicals being released, even the little bit of extra testosterone and estrogen, have positive effects on our internal organs, our blood flow, just like laughter. And like laughter, love, which creates all these positive physical effects, can aid in the prevention and recovery of various diseases. Now, again, I am not saying go out there and fall in love and you will be cured of all cancers and you will be immune to all diseases going forward. No. But when your your body is releasing these good chemicals, your internal organs are healthier and it makes it more difficult for you to become sick, but it is not impossible. If that makes sense. I hope it does. So let's move away from the more physiological side of love and dive more into the the psychology. Um, and there are different types of love. The majority of the research I was focusing on is romantic love. Um, obviously, there is non, non-romantic types of love. There is parental or just general familial. There's love and friendships. I even found a study that included the love of a sports team and how somebody's um, dopamine and serotonin releases in their brain when their their beloved sports team won or lost. And as a pretty diehard Minnesota Vikings and Minnesota Wild fan, I 1080% agree that there is a kind of love there that cannot be defined but it's there and as a as a fan of Minnesota sports in general is usually filled with a lot of heartbreak anyway we're focusing on romantic love and what I looked for when doing research was studies that are, when they define relationship, it's two grown consenting adults. I didn't want anything that specified um, heterosexual or even homosexual relationships. I wanted to look for for studies that didn't take that into into question when they were doing their research. Um, And I do acknowledge that this research obviously does not apply to those on the asexual spectrum or those in polyamorous relationships. Like I said, that is something I want to um, dive more into in a later episode. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard about the five love languages. I thought this was a really new concept, so I was really surprised to learn that this was introduced in the 90s 
by a guy named Gary Chapman. He was an author and a pastor. He created, or I shouldn't say create, he didn't create the love languages, but more or less um, defined them as ways of showing another person that you love them. The five love languages are words of affirmation, which is telling your significant other that you appreciate them and verbally expressing affection. Quality time, which is time together that is focused on being present with each other, not just sitting next to each other on the couch, but but really being, being present in the moment with each other. Acts of service is a love language. And that is when when you are trying to make your person's life easier or more enjoyable. Receiving gifts, and that's that's you receiving gifts. And this one kind of always didn't make sense to me because I'm like, how is receiving gifts a love language? Um, but it's it shows that the other person was thinking about their partner's wants and needs. So I I I see how I see how re- receiving gifts is is a love language. It's definitely not one of mine, but I I get it a little bit more now. And then physical touch and duh, <laughs> you know what that means. But the love language of physical touch is not just sexual intimacy. Just being near your person, that person that you have fallen in love with, releases dopamine. So it doesn't have to be sexual for it to be considered physical touch. Psychologists and relationship therapists have recently begun to study the correlation between using the love languages with with their their patients and relationship satisfaction and there is there is a it's one of those causation correlation things there's nothing that is said for sure that love languages are are a definitive way to improve a relationship but are more so a useful tool for learning how to better support or show love to your partner. It was observed and reported by many psychologists and couples therapists that um, couples who incorporate the love languages report higher feelings of closeness and happiness in their relationship versus those who don't. And there was also, I found interesting, a lot of information regarding love, our perceived feeling of love, and the five senses. How does love affect our senses? And what are the observable features associated with love and the senses? Falling in love essentially happens with your whole body. You start with sight, that's obvious. Seeing our person, seeing seeing that person you have fallen in love with releases pheromones. Pheromones are common in mammals. They are basically hormones, 
but they're on the outside. And they can be subconsciously detected by a member of the same species. Most mammals have some sort of pheromone. Smell and taste kind of go hand in hand. Um, Each individual person has their own unique smell and their own unique taste. So like an odor that reminds you of your person, just smelling that, smelling their cologne or smelling lilacs and it takes you back to that beautiful outside date you went on that you were surrounded by lilac bushes. That also releases dopamine. Same with the tasting. Your your individual person has has a taste, but you also associate taste with them. So again, on this beautiful date surrounded by lilac bushes, lilac is like my favorite scent in the whole world. Um, you were eating sweet corn and Gouda burgers. I don't know where I pulled that out of, but those tastes, you are going to, for the foreseeable future at least, associate those tastes with your person and with love. Hearing is another sense that's kind of obvious when it comes to love. The sound of their voice stirs up those attachment chemicals, but also music. And again, music is a whole podcast episode in and of itself. Hearing that song that reminds you of them creates those attachment chemicals. It releases all that good stuff, that serotonin, that dopamine, even that adrenaline. And then again, the fifth sense is touch. Um, and I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. Touch is hand holding and kissing and hugging, all of those things and more, wink, wink, release oxytocin. Oxytocin, again, is a chemical that is associated with uh, long-term relationships. People who are in long-term committed relationships have more oxytocin than people who are single or have not been in a relationship for very long. All right, so let's jump back into a little bit more about the biology of love. Essentially, the the foundation from a biological standpoint of love is it triggers the reward centers of the brain. And in that sense, love and addiction are very similar in that they both trigger those reward systems of our brain. If something makes me feel good, whether it's in short bursts or if it's a lot all at once, if it's getting those feel-good chemicals moving, I want more of that. And that's where where love can be, in and of itself, an addiction. Um, and like a drug or alcohol addiction, withdrawals from love, so let's say a really bad breakup or from more of a familial perspective or or a friend losing somebody that you're very close to can manifest 
physical and psychological effects similar to those of someone withdrawing from drugs or alcohol. So yes, there is a negative side to love. We know that. And that's basically every episode of Snapped. Their brains go all wonky and the withdrawals sometimes end with somebody's head in a crockpot. Sorry, that was really, (laughs) that's a really terrible image. Anyway, science still can't fully explain what love is. Same with attraction. We can observe the chemical reactions in our brain and we can see these physical symptoms of love, but we don't know what causes them. These releases of of dopamine and serotonin and the increased testosterone and estrogen, those things aren't happening first and then we associate those that then we decide that's love, we sort of fall into that that lust and then attraction and then attachment pattern, which then causes the chemical reactions and the physical symptoms. So it's interesting that when it comes to what came first, the chicken or the egg, well, what came first, the love or the lovesickness, well, it's, it's, it's the love. And science can't quite pinpoint what actually makes a person fall in love with another person and why why is it important that we understand love who who cares i'm sure some of you are thinking who cares if science can't figure out what makes us fall in love understanding the nuances of the brain of the human psyche and understanding the our personalities, the personalities of humans, personality of all animals, is is critical for progressions in therapy and medicine and just understanding human behavior. We are constantly evolving intellectually and physically, and the concept of love is a huge part of our social bonding and the overall health and wellness of a person and societal progression. So the more love we have as an individual, as a community, as a society, the general physical and mental health improves in in, in us as individuals and our groups. That's why studying something like love and its effects on the brain and the body are so important because it's part of a much bigger issue and part of a much bigger idea. So with that existential crisis, that's all I have for episode five. Like I said, there is so much... So many spinoffs I could do about love, um, and I'm looking forward to diving into some of those topics in the future. There was just so much research. I tried to condense it all into sections that made it easy for me to understand, and I looked for um, research conclusions that used a little bit more layman terms or was easily translated from science jargon into regular 
Joe Blow down the street language. What's been really fun about this, not just this episode, but this podcast in general, is you guys are basically coming along with me as I discover something new, as I learn something new. I I will I have yet to and will not cover something that I just already know a ton about. That's not fun. For me, it's the research and the learning and putting it all together and drawing conclusions. That's what's really enjoyable for me. And so I hope it's enjoyable for you to at least if you're not learning something or interested in the topic, you are entertained by my personal um, knowledge journey. So if you didn't learn something about love, that's okay. Make sure you're still sending out love, putting that into the universe. Platonic or not, the world will be a better place, literally, if we all just loved more and sent more love into the world. I know that sounds really hippy-dippy, but I have just shown you that there is actual physiological evidence that love just makes things better. So what are we talking about next week? We're talking about something that I very much love, and that is sleep. Yes, we are going to talk about the science of sleep. Have you ever heard that we do not fully understand sleep, like the scientific community still cannot fully understand why we sleep, why we sleep for as long as we do. I find that very fascinating. So next week, we're going to cozy up in bed and learn all about my favorite hobby, which is sleeping. But until then, love your fellow humans and continue to go be weird humans. Bye. This episode of Weird Humanity was written and researched by me, Amanda Reinhardt. Sources used for each episode can be found in the show notes. Be sure to like, subscribe, review, and give us all the stars wherever you listen. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Weird Humanity Pod and join the Facebook group Weird Humanity Podcast. Send your show ideas, letters of praise, or advertising inquiries to weirdhumanitypod at gmail.com.